Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 12. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. Today, we're going to be talking book club. Yeah, we're going to be discussing The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. And if we seem a little bit slower than usual, it's because we just had a gigantic dinner. Yeah, I'm going to try really hard not to vomit during this podcast. (laughs) We might take a nap and pause and then come back and record a part of it later. Uh, So The the Art of Learning, we've referenced this in earlier episodes, but there is enough content in that book that's relevant to the mental aspect of a strategic game like jiu-jitsu that we thought it would be good to just have a conversation about the book itself. There are a lot of mental models in the book that actually led to the direct creation of content that we put on our website. It also, for me anyway, gave me some insights into strategic thinking for jiu-jitsu and some of the the techniques and, and principles that I can use in jiu-jitsu, particularly when it comes to the mental game and the mental side of things. For those who aren't familiar with Josh Waitzkin, uh, the author of The Art of Learning, he is uh, an interesting character. He's a bit of a renaissance man. So he's originally most famous for being a chess grandmaster at a very, very young age. Um, he, uh, it, you know, in his very, very early childhood through to his teens was um, a chess grandmaster. He was the inspiration for the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. And in the book, he talks about that experience as well as talking about how having that kind of fame affected him and affected his enjoyment of, of chess. This is something that, you know, he used to really love, but of course the situation changed for him quite a bit once he started to get world-renowned success, and he kind of developed a bit of a fan following. He interestingly didn't just stop there. He went beyond that and became a competitive Tai Chi practitioner and world champion after uh, he or he moved past his in, into his early adulthood. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that I, I did not know that there was such a thing as competitive Tai Chi. It's <laughs> called push hands. <laughs> yeah, so um, apparently, apparently it is a thing. I actually looked up one of his matches. Um, I wouldn't say that it's the most effective self-defense or most effective martial art in a self-defense standpoint, but it is something that uh, actually apparently does exist. So it, it kind of looks sort of like a like no-gi Aikido or something. A lot of engagement phase grappling. Yeah, ba- basically like if, if you think of like what a judo fight looks like, think of what that would look like without the gi and then think of what that would look like if all you could do was kind of grab the guy's hands and forearms and that's basically what push hands at least to me looked like i mean i i have no experience in this particular martial art but that is kind of what it it appeared to be it was kind of interesting because it looked like two guys just sort of grabbing each other and then spinning around in circles like an airplane until someone fell over 
Yeah, but, it, do, it doesn't look as dynamic uh, or as maybe diverse as a sport like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but definitely there's aspects of of uh, Kazushi and balance and uh, taking momentum and uh, center of gravity from your opponent and using it against them. So um, definitely, you know, not not exactly my favorite choice for self-defense art, but it's very interesting. And, and he, uh, he illustrates it very well in the book as he goes on to describe multiple matches that happen and uh, goes into great detail about the actual uh, the physics of, of what's going on during the match. And, um, and of course, he's a black belt under Marcelo Garcia. And I believe the one of the owners of this school in New York. Yeah, this is, this is something that kind of surprised me because he only makes very brief mention of jiu-jitsu in the book. Yeah, spoiler he, alert. Yeah. Unfortunately, he doesn't talk a lot about Brazilian jiu-jitsu in the book. Yeah, he, he does. He did mention that at one point and that got me thinking, man, I, I, it's interesting that this guy trains jiu-jitsu because that's not the reason I started listening to this thing. So I, I looked it up and yeah, sure enough, he is a black belt under Marcelo Garcia and and he is one of the founders of the MG in Action website. So he's actually like one of the main guys behind the online academy. So he's an interesting character because this is a guy who's achieved, you know, world-class levels at three completely different things. So regardless of, you know, what you think of any of those particular avenues of expression, it takes a certain type of person and, and in particular someone who is exceptionally good at learning to be able to transition from one thing to another and reach that level of success. Most people never get that far at any one thing in their lives. And, and here's a guy who's kind of done it at three different times. So in this book, he talks about the strategies that he's used to rapidly learn and to absorb that knowledge and to build like the mindset of a champion. Now, in the previous episodes, we've talked about a lot of mental models that are either similar or directly inspired by his work. Today, though, we wanted to give the book proper credit and discuss in detail what he talks about in the book um, and maybe hopefully encourage some people out there to go out and read it. It's actually a really interesting read and Josh goes really in-depth in the mental game. So if, if you've appreciated or enjoyed the last few episodes about the mental side of jiu-jitsu, you'll probably like his book a lot. And most of the people I know who have read it have said the same thing. Yeah, I actually read this book on your recommendation, Stephen. It was really interesting for me um, comparing my own journey in uh, culinary arts as well as Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and uh, Josh's journey in uh, chess growing up and how, you know, he's just really obsessed with it. Uh, spent a lot of time playing chess in the park. Uh, I believe grew up in New York and uh, playing against all the all the old veterans in the park and gaining tons of experience mm -hmm. that way. He talks a lot about not only his successes but a lot of his failures. And it's it's good if you're an aspiring uh, athlete or if you're just you know good at what you do and you want to become really really ex uh, you know excellent at your whatever it, art that it is that you do. Um, you know, listening to someone's trials and tribulations and then using it as a reference reference point for your own journey. And, uh, of course, the mental models that he utilizes that we, you know, we talk about so much during this podcast. Yeah, it it's interesting to watch this guy go through the different phases of his life as well and, and the different sports that he's practiced and see some of the similarities between them, especially when it comes to learning um, and some of the things regarding body mechanics too. You know, according to Josh, there's a lot that is, it seems like there's a lot of stuff that's kind of applicable across these different practices. And that doesn't surprise me at all because that's basically what mental models are supposed to 
to be, right? They're supposed to be things that are universally consistent. Uh, they're the building blocks of learning. So if you get really good at these, you should be able to apply them across the board. Now, <clears throat> Josh uses very specific terminology in his book that I found kind of hard to get my head around. So, and, and you may have noticed this on our website too, and in our previous discussions, like he talks about um, mental models that he calls like numbers to leave numbers or form to leave form, which is like a bizarre and super confusing name, but it makes a lot of sense to him. Uh, when, when we put our site together, we've tried to stick to names that are really just kind of easily understood, especially to jujitsu people. But in, in the honor of Josh, since he innovated a lot of this, I've gone with most of the names that he's used, but we'll do our best to try to explain what those things mean and why he uh, chose those names and how that relates to his personal background. So, um, in the book, it, it, when it starts off, you know, Josh is talking about his childhood experience. And as Matt said, you know, from a very, very young age, he kind of got obsessed with chess. He was playing it in the park, um, you know, beating up the old guys at chess. <laughs> and before you know it, he started getting some mentorship and started working on the competitive scene. And it sounds like, you know, like a lot of people who really have that mindset and, and, and skill level and excel at that level, you know, at the beginning, it's just super, super fun and he loves it and he's super passionate. But then in the later chapters, he starts to talk about the various things that kind of disenfranchise him about it. You know, he talks about like his first big deflating loss and he talks about, um, you know, like really, really underhanded tactics that some of his opponents use or things that took his mind out of the game. Um, he talks about a lot of stuff like that. And he talks about the impact that his fame ultimately had on his ability to focus and on his enjoyment of the, the sport of chess. And then he kind of goes on after that chapter of his life to talk about, you know, Tai Chi. He never really gets into jujitsu, but presumably he would probably say the same things now that he did then. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, when you first start in whatever it is that you're passionate about, you love it because it interests you and because, you know, you, you see you see that there's a little bit of um, potential in you. So you just want to be, you want to follow that passion and, and really get as good as you can and do something for the love. And then years later, you look back and you re there's a lot of things that maybe, you know, for your job or whatever, you're, you start becoming jaded about things uh, about the industry that you're in and, and just listening to him, to, you know, speaking from experience, it's really interesting how he, how he goes from a, such a young boy who loves what he's doing and then, and then he sees sort of the, the side of chess that he doesn't love so much, such as, like you said, you know, foul play from people kicking him under the tables and distracting him and, and, uh, and things like that. Um, yeah. But, but some of the experiences that I, like one experience I really like is when he talks about how, um, you know, he, he, he loses his, or didn't lose his first coach, but he, when he discovered that his first coach wasn't really the, the best coach for him. And, uh, that was an interesting thing for me uh, in, you know, being a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu practitioner. When you first start Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, sometimes we get into the habit of thinking that our, you know, our instructor is invincible or that they know everything or that they, uh, that you have possibly that, you know, that you're with the best possible instructor that, that you could be with. But then as you get a few years experience and you meet other people, you begin to realize how maybe that instructor isn't the, you know, maybe at the time that was a great instructor for you because they took you to a certain level, but 
that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be the best instructor to take you to the highest level possible. And I found that really interesting. And also it really rang true for me because uh, I've gone through several instructors in my life. And, um, you know, if, if I had never gone to, to a new instructor and thought outside the box, I definitely wouldn't have reached the level of a competitor or instructor that I am today. It, you know, I think this is going to be a recurring theme. But one of the things that I'm seeing is a lot of what appears in Josh's book is very similar to the things that we've already discussed. And that's great news because the whole idea behind this project is to document the mental models behind Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So if we're on the right track, it means that what we're talking about should be very similar to what other people say as well. Uh, and, you know, Matt, we talked significantly about this in prior episodes where, you know, there will come, a, there could come a time anyway, where you outgrow your coach. And that does not mean that your coach is bad um, or that there's anything wrong with your coach. It, it could be that things are great with your coach, but just they've given you everything they can give you. And to get to the next level, you need to go somewhere else. And Josh actually describes that particular situation in his book where he's got a coach and the coach is great. Uh, but at some point he realizes that he's got to really step it up and switch to another coach. And he talks about experiences with multiple different coaches and some coaches where the style just was not his style and there just wasn't a match there and he had to move on. And, and also Ultimately, at the end of the day, I believe, you know, I don't recall exactly how it goes, but he ultimately kind of finds the right coach for him. This ties into something we've talked about in prior episodes where it's it's easy, especially at the early levels of jujitsu, to get really caught up in authority and to be kind of overly respectful of people because they're a black belt or they're a world champion or they're just really famous. But the reality is that none of those things mean that that person is a great coach. And even if they are a great coach, none of those things mean they're the best coach for you. You know, if your if your coach has a very different way of thinking from what works for you and plays a very different type of game, even if you love the person, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be the best fit for you. So you kind of have to separate people from the position that they occupy and not get overly worshipful of their level of authority. And you also have to understand that parting ways does not always mean that something went wrong, right? It, it could mean that things are actually going very, very good, but it's just time for you to move on to take the next step up in your jujitsu career. Yeah. And it's very important for your coach to not only understand and respect those decisions, but to sort to identify what's going to help you for, for your game game and and give you the understanding that you need to to go to the next level like i i could you know let's say i'm i'm a really big jujitsu fighter in terms of my stature and my game is very heavy but then i have students that are you know a lot smaller um and I just tell them to use pressure, right? Or something vague like that. It's not going to be super effective for, for a much smaller practitioner if they're just told to be really heavy, you know, and, and adopt that style of top game pressure for, you know, everyone's different. Um, I have to understand that people have different needs depending on their body type and what works for their bodies and what kind of style that they have. So, it's very important as an as a jiu-jitsu instructor to be able to have i want to say almost a universal uh instructional style that will not rely on things mm. such as attributes but things that are more universally uh coherent within the principles of jujitsu for everybody yeah it's you know when you're when you're teaching people your objective should not be to make carbon copies of yourself your objective should be 
to give these people all of the tools that you have so that they can be the best version of themselves, right? Your, your goal should not be to like copy and paste yourself onto every single person in the club because everyone is so different. And, and there are things that, you know, might work obviously for some people. Like, for example, a big guy might have a very particular obvious set of moves that work better for him than they would for someone like me. But then sometimes there are anomalies, right? Like I'm a pretty small guy. I do a lot of like high pressure techniques as well. And for some reason, a few of them work. Um, so everyone is incredibly unique and different. And if you try to force your game and way of thinking onto somebody else, that's usually a sign that there's a not, not a good fit there. And so, you know, when Josh talks about this, he kind of goes into the the pain of like getting to that point with his coaches and understanding that he has to move on and then like finding I, I think at one point in the book he describes this like this hard-ass coach that he's got who's got this very particular style and he keeps trying to make it work with Josh and it's just not happening because Josh's game is very different like Josh kind of describes his style of playing chess as like wild and chaotic and he's talking about this like like kind of like hard-ass coach he has that wants everything to be much more methodical and strict and Josh eventually comes to the the uh the decision at the end of the day that he can't get rid of the things that have worked for him in the past. It's better for him to build on those rather than to arbitrarily throw out things that are working to appease a coach. Yeah. And sometimes if you do end up in a situation where you have to leave a coach for whatever reason, like Steve was saying, it's not necessarily because things have gone bad. Uh, last year around this time, I was being considered to be a black belt under um, under my, my former coaches. And they, they were saying that, hey, we think it's time that you, you know, you get your black belt. And I was doing really good with, you know, if I, I was competing with black belts in, in a lot of Nogi tournaments at this time. I generally locally would hold my own with black belts, if not be, you know, pretty successful with black belts. And then I talked to my uh, to my current professor, Rob Bernacki, who's a great friend of mine and, of course, an, an amazing coach. And I said, hey, you know, uh, the, the guys are thinking about giving me my black belt. What do you think? And the first thing he said was, you're not ready. The first thing he said was, your guard is not good enough. And uh, at first, I was kind of taken aback because I was like, well, you know, people rarely pass my guard. How, how can you say that? But then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that if someone was going to give me such harsh, straight up feedback that uh, I wasn't used to hearing and it was uncomfortable to hear, I realized that that was the type of person that I needed to follow because he's seeing holes in my game Um that that will make me a much better uh, competitor at the highest level because like he said you know who cares if you if no one locally can pass your guard i i want you to be able to fight the best in the world and 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 uh and nobody can pass your guard so that is why eventually i ended up going with rob because he had the the foresight to give me that you know that kind of a brutal reality check that hey you know what Yes, you're good, but there's definitely things that can be worked upon. And uh, in his opinion, I wasn't ready for the black belt. So that totally made sense for me. And, you know, that pretty much made up my mind right there that I was going to go with Rob. That's a really great example of a growth mindset, which is something something that we talked about earlier, because a lot of people in that situation would completely shut down that conversation and say, well, you're wrong. I'm ready for a black belt. Someone else is going to give me a black belt. So I'm going to go get that black belt. Right. And they kind of start to chase the rank there. A lot of people would do that. Um, but a growth mindset is all about kind of rather than looking for like, uh, you know, 
um, status symbols or attributes that you think are permanent about yourself or, you know, trying to build up your ego. It's about really looking for ways to improve and you can always improve. And interestingly, we, we talked earlier about the research from Carol Dweck on growth, on the growth mindset that she discusses in her book on the topic. And I think Josh actually makes reference to the same research in his book as well. So he's kind of talking about the growth mindset in his, uh, in his work and how it's important rather than just thinking, oh, I'm great, I'm great, to always be looking for ways to improve regardless of how good you may actually be, right? It's not about how good you think you are. It's about every day looking for ways that you can improve and, and fix the things that are preventing you from being even better. Exactly. We discussed this in previous episodes about rather than, you know, putting your putting the, uh, the world championship on a pedestal and, you know, my goal is to win these championships or whatever. It's great to have those goals, but what goals can you set that will get you uh, there one step closer every day? What habits can you create? And, uh, you know, how can you basically invest in your lifestyle that will make those long-term goals a reality over time rather than always just making the end goal uh, being, you know, a cha- the world champion or whatever? So it's really important to, to to think about everyday habits that can lead you to that rather than, you know, the the big overall goal and put it on a pedestal. Yeah. And another thing that we talked about briefly there, you know, Matt and I have a saying and that is do what works, right? It's, it's very common for people to doubt themselves because they found a technique or a strategy that works for them that is unorthodox. Um, and maybe people will poo poo that strategy and tell, say, Oh, that's not good jujitsu, right? But ultimately at the end of the day, the only thing that defi- that defines good jujitsu is it works against quality competition and it's fundamentally sound for from a principles and and an alignment standpoint, right? If if you have a strategy and you can justify it using reasonable arguments and you have evidence that it works, it works. It, it doesn't matter if other people, even if very smart and intelligent people who know more than you say it doesn't work, right? The reality is a lot of the time, people who are very experienced tend to kind of get their ego attached to things and they're resistant to new ways of thinking as we've discussed yeah. in the past. So um, this is something that, you know, I, I think is um, mentioned and kind of there's a good example of that in the book where Josh, again, talks about how he eventually comes to realize that his style just might not be a style that his coach necessarily likes. It might not even be a style that is technically considered good, but if it's working, you know, then you've got to find a way to develop on top of the the skill set that naturally comes to you rather than trying to arbitrarily throw things out to please your instructor, right? It's, it's something to be very, very mindful of when you're looking for a good jujitsu gym. Um, there, you know, there might be there might be weird, random things that, that you do that are technically not good techniques, but if you can do them safely and you have luck with them, then it's worth thinking about. I mean, I, for, I'm kind of pretty well known for this, right? I've got a lot of weird, bizarre, oddball techniques that aren't supposed to work very well, but they've always worked for me. And I've chosen to develop on top of those, even if they're a little bit different. Yeah. And that's basically what jujitsu is, is you, you use what works and you discard what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And that is going to change for everyone, depending on their you know, their attributes, uh, their size, their, uh, their style, whatever, whatever, you know, who they learned from growing, uh, growing up in the sport. So, um, you, you know, it, like you said, as long as it's fundamentally sound and for me conceptually, if, if, if it, 
usually fits the alignment concepts and the uh, guard retention concepts, then, you know, I'll make a, a decision whether or not I want to absorb something new into my game or not. But, um, you know, if, if someone's going to give me crap because I net crank them from the back, but they still let me wrap my arm around their neck yeah. and then they're telling me they're hiding behind the rules. <laughs> yeah. They're going to hide behind the rules. Well, I'm, you guess I'm still going to crank your face off just because it's, it's a legit move, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately it is a martial art and you know, if you are behind someone and you get that dominant angle and then you get them in a position where your arm is over their face are you gonna not you know defend yourself because you can't get under their chin no that's mm-hmm. not a that's not really a good enough defense to prevent me from cranking your jaw off. yeah I, I actually want to talk about defensive strategies at some point in a future episode because this is something that always kind of bothers me when people's chosen defense is to basically like do nothing and hope the other person gives up that is never a good defense right if your defense is basically to try to shell up and not try to escape the position and just hope that due to gassing out or the rules or boredom your opponent just lets you go like unless you're an armadillo or a porcupine that kind of defense is probably not going to work effectively for you in jiu-jitsu yeah you you, you, like perfect example would be olympic level judo you know sometimes you'll be watching high level Olympic judo and someone gets thrown in a, you know, it's not a pawn. It's, it's, it's a, like a wizari or they end up on their stomach and then you see them just lie there and wait for the ref to yeah. stop it. And, you know, sometimes the person on top just gives up the position and stands up again. And then, you know, they, they begin back on the feet again. But a lot of the time they'll get caught off guard by somebody who has a little bit of nawaza and then they, you know, all of a sudden they're, they're, they're getting in, their they're back. Fight. Yeah. They're, they're getting their, their back. Lives. Yeah. They're get they're getting their back choked out and, and they don't see that as a position of, of uh, extreme disadvantage under the rule set of judo but really what you're doing is you're basically just giving your opponent a freebie mm-hmm. and uh it's it's a it's an awesome thing to see someone yeah. see someone get caught on their heels like that and and lose because it's you know that's going to be a learning lesson from them and hopefully they'll uh you know, they, they won't just say, oh, well, you know, I, I went against someone who was really good at jujitsu. So that's why I lost and make an excuse for themselves. It should, you know, you should say, no, your mindset was that, you know, you, you gave up basically and you uh, you allowed them to take control. And that's why you lost. The yeah. Fight. And, and that's another great example of a growth mindset. Right. There are a lot of people, myself included, who, you know, when they when they lose or things don't go their way, there can be a laundry list of excuses that are immediately provided as to why that happened. Uh, you know, I, I see this all the time when people something doesn't go their way in jujitsu and, you know, is immediately out of their mouth. They list off all of the reasons why. And it's never anything to, that they did. It's always something that someone else did usually the ref <laughs> and, yeah. um, and, and the reality though is that like that's not a growth mindset right if, if you want to really and, and it's also not extreme ownership if you yeah, want to that's right. if you want to actually gain anything out of the experience it doesn't matter whose fault it was right it doesn't matter why it happened it's it's just let's learn from this and let's make sure it doesn't happen next time let's use this as a as a platform and a stepping stone to get better rather than just dwelling on it and gaining nothing from the experience yeah and and i'll say this i've been i've done this before too and you know you you go into a tournament and then and then you lose by a point or whatever and then after you oh fuck i hate points i hate (laughs) i I only want to do sub only or whatever you know and then and and then i've I've said that before and then after i i thought about i'm like you know what if if i'm if i'm blaming the rules 
um, it, it's not the rules fault that I got outpointed by my opponent. You mm-hmm. know what I yeah. mean? It's, 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 you knew the rules going into it, right? I knew the rules going into it. Well, I, actually, sometimes, sometimes I did. you don't, <laughs> sometimes you don't, uh, they're, they're always changing the rules. Like, like in the, in the last tournament that happened last week in Oregon, I did the Naga and, and got gold there. And then I got bronze in the, uh, the Portland open IBJJF. And, um, I got flattened on my back in the half guard and I, I, actually didn't know that that was an advantage once once the action disengages your opponent gets an advantage if they flatten your back because i just figured you know i'm i still maintain my guard they didn't really pass the guard they just flattened me and then i got back and uh i i came up and almost swept them and i thought that i did enough to put them the actual rule is put them on their back or their butt and then uh they pop up you would get an advantage for an attempted sweep mm-hmm. um but but the match ended just as that happened and I thought I was going to get my advantage but instead my opponent got the advantage and I was shocked because I thought I had done enough to get to the next match um you know, I, I've seen people in tournaments where where they think that they've been wronged or they made a mistake, and then they storm off and they're you know they they start blaming the ref or they they you know they'll make other excuses for their loss. But but what what I I I sort of you know I don't want to be like pump my tires or whatever. But I, I I said to myself, you know what? Okay, what happened? Like I started asking the ref. Okay, I just want I'm not going to complain. I just want to know why he got the advantage and I didn't. And then he said, you know, well. You, the half guard he flattened you out in the half guard and i thought about like, what does he mean by that like is that even a and then i checked with the corner or uh, i checked with um a few of the coaches and they said yeah that's a rule because i and i i literally said okay wow like i didn't actually know that rule so how can i blame the rule set when it's me who didn't have the perfect fight so i i said from there on okay well then what i've gained from this is i now know more about the advantage system and i know more about how i can you know how I can make adjustments to win in the future. I had to, mm-hmm. I had to keep those grips and finish, uh, finish my sweep attempt by putting him on his back. And I certainly couldn't let him, uh, I couldn't mismanage the distance and let him flatten me to my back. So if you, it's going to be a lot more of a constructive experience in the end if you can take extreme ownership and say, okay. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm going to try and learn. And even though I lost, I want to take a positive out of this, you know, rather than rather than blaming something and saying, oh, I hate the point system. Why do you hate the point system? Because you lost. What if you won? You'd love the point system. Or what if the point system worked in your favor? You would have loved it. So, yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it's interesting that you you mentioned that because there's you know, this is a situation where frustrations like that could have absolutely derailed you. Um, and there, but there's also the more insidious type of frustration, right? Like where your opponent is actively playing some sort of mind games with you. They're doing things to deliberately try to provoke a response. I, I've been to competitions where I've seen a, you know, guard passing that actually is closer to punching the guy in the stomach. But, you know, some guys will do stuff like that or they'll try, they'll, they'll do moves that are basically reaping the leg, but they've kind of positioned themselves in such a way that it doesn't, it's not obvious. You know, basically things that are, intended to get an advantage by any means, um, and, and in a lot of cases to provoke a psychological response in their opponent. And in, especially in a lot of high level competitors, you know, high level competitors tend to be the kind of people who are especially sensitive to this kind of thing. Um, Josh talks a lot about that in his book, and he talks about how he's had these frustrations before, some of which are imposed by his opponents, some of which are nothing to do with his opponents, just aspects of his life. Um, and he goes into detail about 
things that have frustrated him and taken his head out of the game and how he's come up with ways to use those as motivations to get his head back into the game. Uh, <laughs> some of these examples that he gives will probably be very familiar to people who compete a lot. Like, you know, when you're, um, when your opponent is doing like underhanded things, like trying to like, it, the example he gives is people trying to like kick him under the table. When playing chess. But when he starts going into, um, like, competitive Tai Chi, he talks about how, like, when he goes to and competes in foreign countries, and the foreign countries are, like, obviously biased and stacking the deck towards the local guy, right? Which I think is something that everyone in jiu-jitsu can relate to. Yeah, Um, like, like not letting you know when your fights are, but the home team knows when their fights are happening. Yeah, yeah, like all of this, like, really dirty, underhanded stuff. Um, And he also gives examples of things that have nothing to do with his opponent. Like, he has an interesting story about getting a song stuck in his head and it got so distracting that it was actually preventing him from being able to play effectively Um, and the problem with a lot of things like that right is when you get like a bad thought stuck in your head and your immediate reaction is to resist it and fight it that always makes it worse right you know the the example that um, a lot of people always hear is like if I tell you don't think of a pink elephant the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to think of a pink elephant right I just did yeah (laughs) and he, he talks a lot about being being able to turn these um, frustrations into motivating factors rather than using them as something that kind of takes them down the downward spiral. This, in a lot of ways, kind of ties into, um, and, and actually he talks a lot elsewhere in the book about the concept of mindfulness, right? Of rather than, than getting caught up in trying to fight these feelings and these emotions, even if they're reasonable feelings and emotions to have, you know, kind of taking a step back and approaching them analytically and rationally and asking yourself, how can I use this as a motivating factor rather than as something that defeats me? Um, The example he gives, for example, when he talks about getting a song stuck in his head is eventually he just starts playing the game to the rhythm of the song. (laughs) So so when when this song gets stuck in his head, he just starts like getting pumped and he just starts playing the game in momentum with the song. Um, I I thought that was a really interesting way to deal with kind of a, a very silly but potentially devastating you know mental problem that you can have um, it's a really interesting book if you find yourself susceptible to that kind of like mental frustration or you get caught up in these things a lot he gives some very concrete examples as to how to overcome that yeah he also talks about uh reggie miller uh in the nba who was in i i guess in the playoffs i don't i'm not a not a, not only do i not know much about sports but i don't know much about the nba at all i don't but know much about jujitsu competition so you know <laughs> but, but, at least you have an excuse for not knowing about the nba right he, he basically says that uh you know spike lee is in the crowd and he's uh spike lee a very famous uh director and he's uh you know, Reggie Miller is playing against his team and, and, uh, he's, he's razzing Reggie, Reggie Miller from the court side. And what happens is the, uh, attempts to throw Reggie off his game actually start working against him. And Reggie Miller just goes on fire and yeah, I, I, just to piss off Spike Lee. Yeah. And, and, and uses it to fuel him, which is something that is very real. If someone's trying to, you know, let's, someone in the stands is trying to razz you. Sometimes if you, if you start to gain momentum as a, as a, as an athlete, you know, you can start to use it against them and then make yeah. them look like a fool real quickly. So it sounds a lot like how comedians deal with hecklers, right? Is they basically just like turn it against that person, turn it against them. Yeah. Rather than letting it affect their performance. So is it, it's also really interesting hearing Josh talk about that and uh, talk about you know these dirty tactics being used against your opponent and it can happen it's all a mental battle right it's it's as long as you don't let it affect you and get under your skin you can totally use it against them and and uh, you know quite effectively and and usually 
much much more effective than what they're trying to do to you yeah yeah it's um it's really enlightening to see kind of how like a champion level athlete kind of like what's going on inside their head and how these how they deal with these situations you know both externally imposed and sometimes internally imposed where the, these like frustrations boil up within them and how they kind of overcome them like how they how they overcome the the weaknesses of their own mind um, Josh also talks a lot in the book you know while, while we're talking about mindfulness he talks about how like it's so important to stay in the zone and stay in the present moment moments and you know because there are so many things that can rattle you but um, if you're obsessed about the past or the or the future or what ifs it's going to take your attention off of what needs to happen now yeah. you know Matt you were talking about an interesting example he cites in the book where he's getting all messed up during a game and then an earthquake suddenly happens yeah. and that's enough to pull his attention back into the moment and get him back on track yeah, I, I believe actually what happens was the earthquake gives him clarity. I believe it's a match in India he's having, uh, and and he's it's kind of a uh, I don't know if it's like a, a shootout in the match, and he's it's kind of everything's chaotically happening, and he can't really gather himself. And then the earthquake happens, and it kind of knocks some sense into him. And then they actually take a, a I think a, a short recess to to mm-hmm. gather their thoughts or whatever and and uh you know after the earthquake make sure everyone's okay or whatever and then they come back and and he knows exactly what he's going to do so sometimes it can be a, a traumatic event or or a, a a specific event that can kind of give you that clarity that you need and he also goes on to talk about recreating that like creating mm-hmm. a strategy to be able to recreate that trigger in your mind to essentially enter uh you know what he calls the flow state yeah and and sort of reach your peak performance and anyone who's done jujitsu knows that um you know what what you're trying to do essentially is get into that zone where you're not really thinking but you're more just acting upon reaction and relying upon your your hours and hours of training to take you into that state where you know, you have a really clear mind and you you just focus on the task at hand. And uh, a big part of, of what I got from the book was when he discussed how he would actually teach businessmen to to set triggers and routines in their in their uh, preparation so that they could go in and and do a board presentation and already be in the flow state. You know, he starts off by saying, you know, okay, well, I like to have uh, I like to listen to music for 20 minutes. Then I like to have a stretch for 20 minutes. Then I like to, you know, or I I like to have a meal and then, uh, you know, and then I'll go uh, play catch with my son or something. And then I'm ready to go for the day and it helps. And then when I do it enough times, the, the repetition of it all uh but when i do it enough times i get into the zone without even thinking about it and then what he tries to do is he tries to add distractions to it or he tries to limit the time allowance for it so that on game day if you do have other distractions and you need to adapt on the fly or if you have less time to prepare prepare than you would have expected then um then you know you're gonna you're gonna be able to overcome those uh, obstacles. Like a a prime example for me again, I'll reference last weekend in Oregon um, was uh, you know you you try and set yourself up as best as you can. So we we got to the 
to the arena about an hour before we were supposed to fight, uh, which was luckily early in the morning. And I hadn't eaten breakfast, which is something new that I'm trying. And I feel like it really helps me get into the, get into the, uh, the zone by being hungry. And I feel a lot more flexible and malleable when I'm hungry and not bloated, but also I feel more uh, awake and aware and ready to hunt. And, uh, I have a much sharper mind when I'm hungry, but I came in and, and I've never had to do this before. So it was quite, quite interesting as I came in two pounds overweight when I was jumped on the test scale about half or about an hour before. So I, I, I had actually mentally prepared for this the night before and thought, okay, I think I'm going to be on weight, but I'm just, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go there. And, and if I, 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 if I am a little bit over, I'm going to be prepared to do what I have to do to make weight. So jumped on the scale. I'm two pounds over what I'm supposed to be. So like, shit, okay. Well, okay. I prepared for this. I, I'd already sort of expected this a little bit. So I had some sweats and I had a, a hoodie on. So I, I started running laps around the gym. I started doing burpees and getting good, good sweat. I also started spitting in a cup, which, you know, you can shed a good pound if you keep spitting in a cup for a half hour. Um, and then, you know, I jumped on the scale half hour later and boom, right on weight. So um, not only did I gain experience from that and and say hey you know what you don't have to stress if you're a pound or two over you can sweat that off the day before and i know that now uh but i was able to not let that affect my um my mindset going into the tournament i wasn't getting flustered at all while i was cutting weight i was i stayed relaxed i said just you know relax you know you're going to be able to get this weight off it's just a distraction we're going to adapt and we're going to be able to fight we're going to make weight we're going to do it so it's you know you could look at it two different ways you can prepare for adaptation and uh you know all the different factors that can happen on game day which are a very real possibility or you can let it totally stress you out get your mind off of the actual fight you're worrying, you're not where you need to be in a headspace and you're getting stressed out. So it's, it's, it really comes down to mental preparation. And again, being able to set these triggers in your mind, uh, if you're a high performance athlete, it's going to help you, uh, really show up on game day. And, and if you're a competitor, that's really what matters. You know, you can be the best guy in the gym, but if you don't compete well on game day, then that's, uh, you know, it's kind of all for naught in a way. So you want to be able to, to take yourself out of the distractions and, and, uh, and make things happen when they matter. Yeah, that, you know, it's, I think everyone has heard of flow, right? Basically the concept of like, you can get into this peak performance state. There's a, an incredibly famous book called flow that kind of exposed everyone to this research. I am not going to try to pronounce the author's name because it's super complicated and I will butcher it. Um, but one of the things about flow is like, Hey, yeah, it sounds great that we can get into this peak state. We've all been there, but how do you force that to happen when you need that? Like, how do you call upon that? Like a superpower. And one of the things that, you know, you talked about Matt and, and one of the things that Josh talks about in his book is how to set up mental triggers and shortcuts so that you can get there. And I, you know, I've heard of stories of guys who like in their meditation practices have practice and built these triggers so that, you know, they've, they can completely defuse and de-stress themselves and kind of like bring down their emotional heat level just by taking a few breaths, right? Mm -hmm. If, If you practice that, and set that as a trigger and build a routine around it, then um, you can kind of call upon this state on command. This is something that you can also use in uh, the workforce wor- world, right? Which is, you know, where kind of I spend most of my time. There's a book I read recently called When. I think it's by Daniel Pink, although I might be wrong. And he's talking about kind of like when the ideal time is to do everything. You know, it's like, when's the right time to do this aspect of your life? When's the right time to do that aspect of your life? And one of the ideas he had, which I, I think is very useful if you're 
you're in like management or you're just dealing with difficult team situations is um, you can use difficult situations as the opportunity to do a fresh start and do like a reboot. So, you know, you're, what you provided there, Matt, is kind of a similar example of where, you know, there was a situation, a, a potentially difficult situation that could come up. You expected it and you kind of knew what to do when that happens and, and to go right into that. Um, you can also use kind of crises or difficult situations as an opportunity to reset the playing field. And basically, uh, and this is especially important if you're dealing with other people who have their egos invested in, in a project or if it hasn't been going well, you can kind of say, okay, this hasn't gone well, just like clean slate. Let's start from the ground up. Let's forget everything we know. Let's drop all of that emotional baggage behind us. And let's just kind of go like we're going from step one again. And that kind of mindset can help you kind of put all of that mental baggage behind you if you're, if you ha- are in a really, really dire, difficult situation. Because the last thing that you want to do when you're stressed like that is be so stressed that you can't get into that flow state because then it's going to be a lot harder to dig yourself out of that hole if you can't get into your peak performance mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some other interesting things I noticed about this book, uh, you know, when he's talking about his chess career, he talks about different chess strategies, some of which are shockingly similar to things that you hear in jujitsu. Like he talks about, um, I, I believe it's pronounced jujwang. It's a, a German word that basically means like you put your opponent in a situation where doing anything is going to be disastrous for him. <laughs> and, he, and he also talks about a strategy called prophylaxis, which basically means like just gradually and slowly strangling the life out of your opponent, right? And it, it's funny to hear these talked about in the context of a chessboard because you always hear people talk about this in the context of jujitsu, right? And yeah, it's just... this ideal. Yeah, this, this exact same kind of strategy. So it's funny that, you know, when you're not even doing anything physical, people can still employ the exact same types of strategies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, you know, go, going further into the book where it really starts to kind of get relevant to jujitsu is when Josh pivots and starts talking more about his Tai Chi career because that, that becomes a lot more physical. And he, he's also starting from square one, right? He's gone, gone from this situation where he was a world famous world champion to now being a nobody in, in a completely different sport. And we've talked in earlier books about investing in loss and Josh goes really in depth in this mental model, especially once he starts getting into martial arts. Uh, he talks about how, you know, like he's at the beginning, you know, he's just getting his ass kicked left and right, basically. Yeah. And honestly, if you're him, it's got to be pretty hard to keep going back to class the next day, right? Now, I, I get it. I get that Tai Chi is not like the most impact-driven martial art in the world, but still, right? Like, Although he makes it sound like he, MMA. He, he does make it sound like it's like blood sport or something. Yeah, I he does. Say. Now, <laughs> I, I've never trained push hands, but it certainly doesn't sound as brutal as he... I mean, I'm pro- we're probably going to get hate mail now, but it certainly doesn't sound like it should be as brutal as he makes it out to be. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but anyway, you know, he talks about how, you know, he's, he's going from the situation where he's like this total hotshot best in the world to be just another like basically the equivalent of a first day white belt uh, and he tells stories about you know like the big guys who kind of like they always want to spar with him and they just kind of like beat him up mercilessly but he talks about how he intentionally seeks out those training opportunities mm-hmm. and after getting defeated you know dozens maybe hundreds of times he, he gets to the part where he starts picking up wins and interestingly around that time those training partners no longer want to spar with him anymore right which is something that a lot of people in jiu-jitsu probably can relate to you know it's you always get benefit from training with people who are bigger and better than you that's where you're going to see the most of your growth 
but it's hard to do. You know, it's it's really, really hard to put your ego aside and just like let basically get into a situation where you're going to get your ass kicked and everyone is watching and then come back and ask for more. Right. But generally, that's how you're going to accelerate a lot faster is when you seek out those hard roles. So, it, you know, it definitely resonated with me being a jujitsu practitioner who always tries to just, you know, get the hardest roles possible. Yeah, and yeah. and that is really, you know, going into the, your, your discomfort zone. That is where you're going to see the most gain. So if you're one of those guys that's, uh, that ducks people or you want, you like sticking to the lower rank roles or certain people in the room because it, you know, it's a comfortable role. Um, and everyone granted has different goals. You know, some people just want to be recreational and just want to stick to the same people that they roll with. But if, if it's, if jujitsu is something like, or whatever it is, if, if, if you want to become the best in your field, you have to make the most of your, of your time, you know, make every round count and you have to really seek out the best training that you can. Yeah, yeah. You know, we we talked about growth from discomfort in in the past, which actually is heavily inspired by a, a quote from Josh Waitzkin. You know, in the book, one of the quotes he gives, which I think is fantastic, is growth comes at the point of resistance. We learn by pushing ourselves and finding what really lies at the outer reaches of our abilities. And and that's basically, you know, where you want to be in jiu-jitsu, right? You always want to be just a little bit outside of your comfort zone. And then once you get comfortable there, you take another little step outside side of your comfort zone. And it's a never ending process of kind of growing and expanding the level of things you are comfortable with and then continuing to just go outside of that comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of some of the specific things that Josh men- mentions that can be a little bit confusing, uh, he talks about this mental model that he calls form to leave form. And, and in other places in the book, he calls it numbers to leave numbers, which is a very confusing name. Um, and it's very kind of hard. It took me a long time to kind of get my head around what he's trying to explain here. But basically what he's saying is that when you're doing something that's really like technically complicated, like chess or a martial art, that what you need to do is you need to like drill concepts so heavily and so consistently that you don't need to think about them anymore. Uh, you're basically, what you want to do, you know, is you want to take these like really, really advanced mechanical motions and move them to the point where you no longer need your conscious brain to be thinking about them, but you can kind of activate them at a muscle memory or a subconscious level. So a perfect example being like, you know, I, I think we've talked about this in the past, but if you want, if you see an arm bar for the first time, you know, you're probably going to sit down and someone is going to show you like 20 individual steps to do the perfect arm bar and you're never going to remember it, right? Yeah. But if you, if you drill that over and over and over again, I mean, you probably still aren't hitting the move in practice, but it's going to get to the point where you no longer need to actively think about those steps um, and, and you no longer need to actively think about the principles behind them. They just kind of get ingrained into your muscle memory or, or into your subconscious. And then, you know, Next, maybe one day someone can come to you and when they say, Hey, do an art, you know, what's an arm bar? You know what all of those steps are. You don't need to think of it as this like bag of like 20 steps that you have to remember individually. It's now been condensed into one word. It's arm bar. You know what the arm bar is, but in reality, it's this big complex thing. But once you can get ideas like to the point where they're in your subconscious and you can just think about them as a simple label and you don't have to think about them anymore. Now you can use that as a building block for something else, right? Because now I can, I can tell you, well, there's this thing called a flying arm bar, or there's this thing called like an inverted arm bar or a short arm bar. And I don't need to take you all the way to, from step one, all the way back up to this again, because you already know some degree of foundation as to what that is. So 
part of what he's talking about here when he talks about form to leave form. And, and the reason he gives it this name is because he's saying basically like you practice the form until you don't need it anymore, right? Like you practice it until it doesn't even exist. It's just like it's in the back of your mind now and you don't need to think about it. The idea is you take these big ideas and you train them until they become building blocks that you can then build on top of. And that's kind of one of his strategies for how he learns rapidly and picks up these new these new things, whether it be chess or tai chi or Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah, and, and the same thing is true uh, like for in cooking, for example. When you're learning all these techniques, there's infinite recipes and things that you can learn. Um, that's why we break things down in cooking to things like ratios and things like, uh, you know, mother, like in terms of sauce cooking, you want to have uh, – you, d- you don't just cook every sauce from scratch. You usually create uh, the five mother sauces and then from those mother sauces, you have a variety of, a variety of classical derivatives. So once you learn how to make the mother sauces – you essentially are able to make a variety of, of different derivatives of, uh, of sauces. So it's, it's the same sort of thing in jujitsu where, you know, if I can, if, if I can learn, uh, the concept of an arm bar, which is just basically uh, control of two ends of a lever with the proper fulcrum, which allows you to, to generate a uh, force that then you're going to be able to see that, that lever concept in different places. Um, and this is also an example of something that we've talked about called incremental learning, where, uh, if I'm going to try and show someone you know a bunch of different arm bars all at once and they don't know what what the the main concepts are behind a regular uh classical arm bar you know i got my work cut out for me but if but if we can you know, show a little bit every day. And maybe the first day I, I show a, a, a traditional arm bar and we drill that a bunch. And then you finally get that down. And then the next day we can add a little bit more onto that. And then the next day we can add a little bit more onto that. Then, you know, before you know it, you've, you've created these, these, uh, sequences where not only are you performing an arm bar, but you know, uh, reactions to your, to your opponent's predictable defenses. You understand the factors and things that can go on. You understand different setups and different angles and different, like you said, different types of arm bars. So, um, you, you know, you're never gonna, you're, you, you, you want to train, like you said, train yourself to have the, the basic most, uh, basic fundamental principles of of a certain technique or a concept and then from there over time you can add on to it and use that as a a platform to build a stronger a stronger understanding of you know the defenses the the uh what can go wrong variations variations And it's interesting because when you see like a black belt be exposed to a new technique for the first time usually Almost immediately, once they see that technique, they they have assessed how, you know, is this technique going to be effective for my body type? If not, what kind of modifications do I need to make to it to make it effective? What kind of variation should I expect? What should my opponent do? Like all of that stuff is so ingrained after over years and years and years of training and repetition that you can kind of just pull it out of a hat. You know, we just had this in class today where I, I, you know, I saw some stuff for the first time that I hadn't seen before and I was pretty able to easily assimilate into it. Like, how does this tie into the stuff that I would normally do? And what what are all of the what-if scenarios? And you don't need to think about it because it's just kind of right in your muscle memory and your subconscious, right? It's not like you need to pull all of those steps out and read every page of the book again. So mm-hmm. um, interestingly, you know, Josh, on, on the topic of incremental learning, he has a very similar mental model that he talks about, which he calls making smaller circles. And what he means by this is like when you're given 
when you're given a whole bunch of stuff to learn, you know, like a new martial art, you should always prefer depth over breadth, right? So rather than trying to pick out a thousand different techniques or variations or flashy combinations, right? You want to focus on the core fundamentals, like discard everything else, focus on really understanding the core fundamentals and perfect those. And once those are perfected, then you can start thinking about how to kind of grow and expand past that. So when he says making smaller circles, he's basically saying like, if your circle of knowledge and expertise contains like a hundred techniques you saw on YouTube, <laughs> you know, you, you want to kind of filter it and you're actually better going micro rather than going macro and, and focusing on the core things. And even once you get down to like a single technique, like an arm bar, for example, you don't need to necessarily even know all of the details of it. You need to know just the core fundamental mechanics. Like when Matt and I are talking about alignment and stuff, that's really what Josh is talking about here, like understanding the, the why of why this move works, right? And then from there, once you've got that mastered, then you can start worrying about all of the little details surrounding that. And, and that again kind of comes into the concept of incremental learning, right? You need to walk before you can run. And in the case of an, like an arm bar, you need to know how to properly, you know, get wedges and apply levers before you can worry about like all sorts of weird variations that could occur from there. Yeah, I, th I think it's, I could be wrong, but I think Josh quotes a, a, a famous French composer. I believe his name is Claude Debussy. I, I'm totally uh, butchering that. But it's basically, uh, the quote is, and I really like this quote, music is, is the space between the notes. I knew you were going to say yeah. that quote. Yeah, and it, yeah. and it's, it's an awesome quote because... Uh, the way that I sort of take that quote in is like, I, I'm an instructor. So when I have a bunch of people that want to learn leg locks, you know, I, I have a, a, a room full of maybe 20 people and some of them are good at leg locks. Some of them are, oh, you know, not that great. They're still sort of putting together an understanding and then some really don't really know anything. Right. So, and I have a, quite a bit of knowledge on leg locks. So, and, and I want to share that knowledge with them. I want them to, to get it all as quick as I can, but I have to be disciplined because I know that if I try and give them all the knowledge at once, that I'm only going to uh, muddle the, the lesson. So, so what's more important is that I actually make smaller circles. I take things away. And this is a constant battle for instructors to actually show less. It's hard to watch someone do something wrong because your initial thought is I want to just bombard them with a list of every little thing they could be doing better but that's not how people learn right? that's right like like and, and when i i remember when i first started teaching around purple belt level i would do that i would mm. see things wrong and i'd correct everything i'd be like no you gotta do this no you gotta do this you gotta do this and then i realized i'm like actually i'm denying them the the experience of getting something wrong, realizing that they did it wrong and then making adjustments on their own. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to, th I'm trying to give them all of the feedback all at once. Uh, I'm trying to give them all the information all at once. And it's, and this actually happens a lot when you're teaching kids because, you know, kids have an even shorter, uh, attention span and, and memory span. And, and, you know, a lot of the times don't even want to be there. So it's, it's hard to, to take, a, to strip things to the very bare minimum concepts to give them. But, but, if I have like, let's say we're doing a, a heel hook from the 411 and I have a room that has a, you know, in a perfect world, everyone would be high level, but that's just not the case when you're running a business, right? So, so I have to first explain what position we're in. I have to explain what, you know, what wedges are going to control. Let's say it's a 411. What wedges are going to keep me in this position? And also how am I going to, what, what, what's my goal? Once I get that position, uh, a lot of people don't even know what to do next. Well, I'm looking for heel exposure. Generally, I'm looking for my digging mechanics yeah. and all the while I have to keep my wedging mechanics strong or else I'm going to lose that 
whole position entirely, right? I need to control the free leg for as long as I can so that the heel hook can become a possibility and my opponent doesn't spin out and get into base. So, you know, understanding the 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 real reasons why techniques work and, and breaking things down to a smaller level, it really helps people understand uh, in a classroom setting, but also as an instructor, I find that it really will help you teach things a lot better and will help mm-hmm. you uh, provide the most essential information possible when you're teaching something. Yeah, you have to, you have to, and I really like the way that you explained this, you know, you're denying people the opportunity to learn from failure. And that that is so important with good instructors. You can't just tell people what to do. Yeah. They have to reason it out themselves, right? It's kind of like Socratic learning with the body. You know, you have to let the person reach the conclusion on their own. And, mm-hmm. and the only way they can do that is by hitting those walls during training or while trying a move. I, I remember one time I was doing a private with my with my coach and I was stuck in mount and he was just sitting there and I like I was just getting crushed with pressure and I, I just for like five minutes I'm trying to escape and nothing is working and then eventually I said okay I can't get out like what am I doing wrong and he says well why didn't you ask me that five minutes ago <laughs> like, I've been waiting for you to ask me that and then we go into this whole discussion so like you know he's waiting for me to get to the point where I'm ready for that next bit of knowledge yeah and that's that's what incremental learning is all about and that's what Josh is talking about when he's talking about making smaller circles like you can't worry about the intricate details and the what ifs if someone doesn't understand the foundations Uh, this is something that you know hits close to home for me because like until recently there were certain moves that I wasn't able to do effectively like I, I would always lose you know even basic things like mounted arm bars because there were certain fun- fundamental things I didn't understand. I was just trying to go through the steps of doing an arm bar, but I was actually not being as effective with positional dominance as I should have been. And as a result, people can spin out of it quite easily, right? So it's some, it's a really valid learning technique to kind of focus on like, think of the day one stuff and don't worry about the day two stuff until you've mastered the day one stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and as an instructor, you know, I always encourage questions and I encourage people that, you know, a lot of the times when I'm teaching something like a, a heel hook from 411, there's a good majority of the class that does understand that. Mm-hmm. So they'll come up after and they'll say, Hey, what about this variation? What about this? What if my opponent does this? So obviously, you know, uh, be ready for those questions too and and be ready to give the, that instruction for those who want that instruction. It's just that sometimes we got to make things a little bit more simple just so that it can reach the entire room and everyone can be yeah. on a level playing field. You can always add to it, but if you give it all at once, uh, sometimes, you know, it's going to actually start working in reverse. Yeah, yeah. You know, what, what's interesting too is that uh, one of the things that this kind of sounds like in a lot of ways, it, the, the flip side of this is... You you know, you need to be ready to absorb that information. You all, um, on one hand, you know, you can have very junior people who are a- actively asking you for this information, but against more senior people, there's always more you can learn. And it takes a, a level of expertise and, and uh, you know, humility really to when you become that senior to actually still ask for the, this information like you're a beginner, you know, ask why isn't this working? And something that, you know, Josh actually has, I believe, a chapter in the book that he calls Beginner's Mind, which again is a mental model that we keep talking about. And I, you know, I, I hate to harp on it once again, but it's so fundamental if you want to succeed at anything in life, but especially if you want to have quicker success than you otherwise could, you need to put that ego aside and be willing to ask for this information when you need it. And when you hit walls, you know, you don't want to get frustrated when something's not working. You don't want to get mad at yourself. You just want to, you know, be just innocently ask and, and see if you can get the answer to why what you're trying to do is not working. Yeah. And being humble is really 
really important too, because being humble, you will have that mindfulness that, hey, I don't know everything and it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to still be, to still have that beginner's mind and to not, you know, strut around like you're, you, you know, you know everything and you're the, you're the shining example for everyone to follow. Um, being humble will pay off in a lot of different ways. Not only will people see your humbleness and, and, uh, and they'll respect the fact that you're humble, but you'll get a lot more out of it because you will be much more open to absorb a lot more information. So that's where that beginner's mind really comes into play. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked quite a bit about the art of learning. I hope that this has inspired you to pick up the book. You know, we, I listened to the audible version. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, There's a lot of different ways that you can engage this content. Of course, you can get it on Amazon. Josh also has a website where he's um, documented kind of the key learning concepts and, and sort of structures behind the book. So there's a lot of material out there. I really do encourage people, especially who are interested in the learning side of things when you, when dealing with jujitsu to pick it up and give it a go. Um, and yeah, do let us know what you think of it. Um, and do, and also do let us know if this type of episode is something that you found interesting because we can always do more like this in the future. So, um, getting into questions, uh, Matt, kind of a, an oddball question came up that I've been sitting in the queue for a while and I thought it would be good to, good to get at it. We were asked to provide anecdotes about specific memories we have, either tournament, class, or just a moment um, that relates to our jiu-jitsu journey. You want to go first? I mean, I did I did provide a few tonight. Uh, let's see, about the about the book? That we talked about today? Um, I, well, I think just about in general, but we could also be specifically about the book. Um, for me, I think one of the things that I, I, I always tell as, as kind of an interesting story is just when it comes to my personal jujitsu journey, you know, I, I got into jujitsu uh, mostly because I was interested in self-defense and because I find going to the gym to be boring. So I was looking for kind of a more engaging way to get my exercise. Um, and what's interesting is that self-defense is like the one thing I've never actually needed to use jujitsu for. Yeah. Um, but it, it you, you and know, everyone else. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, but you get a, you get a lot out of it in other ways. You know, there were, there were certain things that I didn't expect from jujitsu. Like, uh, you know, I, I met my wife through jujitsu. I, I wouldn't have my, you know, my wife and my family and my kid, if not for jujitsu. Um, of course, you know, Matt, you and I spend a lot more time together than we used to because we now have this hobby that eats up so much of our time. Mm-hmm. There's all, also other little weird odd benefits to jujitsu like the fact that like a lot of my coworkers and and even like very very like high ranking people at companies that I, I've worked for train jujitsu so it's kind of given me this interesting opportunity to meet people uh, and work mm-hmm. with people in a way that I wouldn't normally have expected um, and of course this podcast has been a, a super fun passion project where it allows me to kind of really sit down and f- actually actively think about the stuff that I do on the mats you know it's mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of an interesting reflection exercise because when you train, you know, thousands and thousands of times, you're, it gets to the point where you're not really kind of thinking about what you're doing when you're doing it. That's actually what you're trying to achieve with jujitsu, right? You're trying to drill things so much that you don't need to think because, uh, you know, as Salo Hibero says, if you have to think you die, <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you need to be able to just pull these things off. But 
it's proven to be really helpful too to kind of turn the clock back. And now that I've, I've kind of done all of this to actually reflect and think about how all of these things that we do fit together and how they work and how they tie into the stuff that other people are researching, like what Rob's doing, right? And to kind of see the common threads between this and the stuff that people at other gyms do. And it gives me kind of a critical eye too, because, you know, when I look at techniques now, I kind of look at them through our framework and through the framework of alignment and just all of this literature out there. And I try to kind of like assess whether this technique is fundamentally sound. And that's kind of a, a level of thinking that I, I didn't have before. I used to just look at techniques and be like, I either like it or I don't. <laughs> but yeah. now I have a much more reasoned argument as to why I like it or I don't. Yeah. I mean, um, I'll, I'll just share sort of, uh, I guess, uh, I, not really my story, but just looking back on, on where my life was going before I started jujitsu, I was, you know, I was going to, I was preparing to basically become a world-class chef and I was going to, I was going to follow that as much as I could because I was passionate about it and because I was good at it and I, I wanted it. And then the more that I got into it, the more I realized, hey, this is going to have a huge toll on my family life. And, um, and, and it's funny how things change when you're young. Certain things don't matter as much yeah. uh, when you're young. And then when you get older, you realize, oh, yeah, like I'm, I want to have a family. I want to be, have weekends off. I want to, you know, have luxuries like not commuting an hour to and from work and I don't, you know, I don't want to work holidays all the time and things like that. Um, and those things don't seem to matter when you're a young man and you, you're looking for a job. Yeah. Like for, you're trying to make a name for yourself. So you're willing to sacrifice a bit to get there, right? Exactly. And yeah. I, w I was setting up my future to be in an industry that was just based around sacrifice basically. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 uh, for, for not a lot of gain. Um, I, I remember when I first started jujitsu, I actually was going to go to the school that you were training at and I, I had no, I had no uh, aspirations to be a competitor. Like I, I remember I was talking to uh, someone at the front desk and I said, Hey, like my brother trains here. I'm here to try a class. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in maybe training like once a week or something. And they actually said, they actually turned me away. They said, you know, well, no, really? yeah. They, they said, we're, we're actually looking for more commitment than once a week. We don't have any plans like that. I said, oh, okay. So I, I went to a different school. And where that led me was uh, to train with some really good guys, but then that fell apart and everyone left that school, which led me to another school, which where I made a lot of great friends. I started networking in the community, started competing a lot more. And uh, before I knew it, I was I was actually like training every night. Um, I was, te I was starting to teach and I was meeting a lot of people in the community that I never would have met if I had, you know, uh, stuck with that first gym or whatever. And then I met coach Rob through that gym. Um, and, and now looking back, I think, wow, if I never made the decision to compete, I would never have the, uh, a, a portfolio and I would never have like a, a reputation as a competitor, which has, it's really helped me as a, as a gym owner now, because people can access my matches and, uh, and, and, you know, look up my history and, um, also just, uh, the people that I've met and the networks that I've met by going through this weird journey through, through jujitsu, you know, you never know where you're going to be. So, uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, if you're, if you're wondering what you should be doing in life and, uh, you're wondering which direction you should go, I, I don't always recommend going towards, uh, the money and I don't always recommend going towards, uh, the sacrifice because I used to think as a cook that, you know, and the heart, the, the more work that I put in, it's all going to pay off. It's all going to pay off. The fact is, is that that's not true. Sometimes you put in a lot of work, you'll sacrifice a lot and it's never going to pay off. Mm -hmm. Um, 
what I, what worked for me was I found something that I liked and that I wanted to do and I was passionate about. And then I just followed that passion. And, uh, and eventually that passion turned into jujitsu. And I just kept following that passion and, and, um, trying to make that my life. And then throughout the journeys, just, you know, trying to find the best people to train with. I've, I'm here and I, I have, uh, a, a business that basically supports itself now. And I, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy ever. So, so, you know, if you can identify the passion that uh, something that you love to do and find a way to monetize it that's going to be i think the the best route to go i don't necessarily think that you know just because you're working 10 hours a day or whatever means you're going to get the results that you want you know be very selective because uh ultimately i think time and health are way more important than uh and of course family are way more important than things like money because once you have enough money to support yourself and your family uh uh, you can't really take it with you it's not really as important as those things so that's just my little my little you know for people out there and, and definitely if if you are passionate about jiu-jitsu and you want to have a gym one day uh it's possible just do 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 your training every day have a beginner's mind and uh and always try and train with the best people you can and and uh you know never avoid the easy rolls awesome awesome well thanks matt um we covered quite a bit today. Just to quickly kind of recap some of the mental models that we talked about. We talked about how it's critical to respect people, not the positions they occupy, not to get overly focused on, you know, what the quality of a professor based solely on their championships or their, their rank or their level of fame. We talked about having a growth mindset, always looking to improve and not getting caught up in your ego and how big or how good you think you are. We talked about doing what works, uh, you know, regardless of whether it's considered, you know, popular or what your instructor thinks about it. If it works and it's fundamentally sound, you can, you can justify it from an alignment standpoint, then do it. We talked about extreme ownership, uh, taking ownership of aspects of your life, regardless of whether they're your responsibility or not. We talked about mindfulness being, you know, uh, being aware of the present moment and being aware of um, and, and take, you know, essentially direct, uh, eventually overcoming the obstacles put in front of you by your mind. Uh, we talked about flow state and triggers to get into flow state. We talked about investing in loss. We talked about growth from discomfort, which is kind of another part of that. We talked about form to leave form, meaning drilling things until you can do them at a subconscious and muscle memory level. We talked about in incremental learning, meaning that you can't learn everything all at once. And as a good instructor, you need to understand that and give people what they need right now. We talked about making smaller circles, which is related to that, meaning take distilling down and focusing on the core fundamentals and mastering those before you then broaden your, no your knowledge. And finally, we talked about beginner's mind, meaning, you know, always at attacking every situation with the humility and mindset of a total beginner. So I think that wraps it, Matt. Any yeah. closing thoughts you want to cover on the topic of the art of learning? No, it's a, you know, I think we, we covered it really great. That's a great book, guys. Uh, definitely check it out. Again, my only criticism is I wish you talked more about jujitsu, but it's still, there's a lot to learn from, uh, his experiences. And I've, I found the chess portion, uh, Oddly really relevant, <laughs> really relevant and really entertaining. Yeah. Um, I, again, just like you, I, I listen to it on Audible and I think that's a great way to read because, mm -hmm. you know, you can get a lot done while you're listening to books. Mm -hmm. Definitely check that book out, guys. Um, and thank you for the support and keep the questions coming and we hope you enjoyed the chat today thank you bye